Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today I am joined by Chalk Circle lead singer and guitarist, Mr. Chris Tate. Chris, thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you here, man. As you know, I'm a Chalk Circle fan. We were talking about that before we get started. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been a fan since The Great Lake came out. It's 1986, yeah. I believe. Of course, April Fool was on that. But my favorite Chalk Circle tune, Me, Myself, and I, mm-hmm. was also on that record. The thing I love the most about that song is the way that the bridge kind of climbs up to the chorus. Yeah. And so I think that you wrote all the lyrics for the songs, uh, I did uh, for most of them, um, but um, actually Brad's brother, uh, Danny Hopkins, okay. wrote, wrote a few lyrics. And mm-hmm. Brad, or sorry, Derek, our drummer, actually wrote the lyrics to April Fool. Oh, really? So, yeah. yeah oh, okay, a, I didn't know Definitely that. a band effort. So. Oh, I thought yeah. you wrote the lyrics and the band wrote the music. No, no. We all oh. wrote music, yeah. Sometimes I would write a song, pretty much have it fully formed mm-hmm. uh, and come in. Other guys, you know, Brad may have had a more formed idea and brought it in. Uh, but a lot of the songs were came out of like rehearsal jams, rehearsal space jams. No way. We, we had a crazy work ethic. We would literally go to our rehearsal space every day. We'd yeah. show up around 11 and we'd play until five or six. I, I might take ideas home mm-hmm. and scratch, scratch the lyrics yeah. down. And by the end of the week, we'd have a song or two kind of underway and, so somebody would just noodle something out and everybody would jump in? Yeah, just start playing. It was fun. Gig, uh, we took it very seriously. I mean, we just, we, we loved it. That's all we wanted to do, all yeah. of us. So we would, if we had a show, I mean, we would rehearse a set over and over again. We wanted it to be, like, awesome. Yeah, it was, I kinda, it's kind of when I think back to the amount of time and energy we put into the band and those days was... Uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I don't mm-hmm. think I'd put that kind of energy into it now. <laughs> <laughs> I know better. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to that song just quickly, who, yeah. who came up with that? It's just a, such a nice vocal melody that kind of lead up to the chorus. It, it grabs you. Do you remember? I, I, I would have come up with the melody. Okay. Um, and it, to be honest, I have I couldn't remember how. It may have been during rehearsal when we were sort of you know, shaping that into some sort of form mm-hmm. of an, in terms of an arrangement. It, it, it may have been when I'd sort of taken bits and pieces of whatever that song was. I think I, I think the song began with that guitar riff at the, at the opening. I think I yep. wrote that. and We sort of built it around there. Yeah, it's just melody shows up and it just goes out. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the lyric is written in that, the you know, the syllable count almost helps to inform the phrasing, you know, yes. and, and then... Or vice versa. So, it's, yeah. yeah, well, tremendous. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, Great. yeah, glad. Yeah. Okay, so we uh, we had some difficulty pairing the song list down. Yes, <laughs> this is yes, this is not a task to be taken lightly. No, it's. I found out. It's yes. not. Yes, it's absolutely impossible yeah. to you know just do ten of yeah. there and let yeah. alone seven. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so we've got twelve here. Yeah, we got a lot to talk about, and you did this chronologically. I did. Uh, One of the ways I was able to sort of pare it down is I thought, if I can frame this somehow, if I can, you know, if there's some sort of theme. So these songs meant, at at different points in my life, the song would either mean something to me uh, in terms of how my it influenced, you know, how I thought about music and started writing music and other, and all of a sudden introducing me to other artists, et cetera, et cetera. And in some cases, just how how I even became interested in 
in playing the guitar. Mm. The very first song and the very first couple of songs are 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 really kind of about that. And just even even finding out that music exists, yeah, you know, beyond whatever I, I could access at the time, living growing up in Newcastle, Ontario, there wasn't you, there wasn't radio. I mean, it was either a top forty AM station, mm-hmm. which I wasn't particularly interested in, or my parents listened to CFRB, okay, uh, which was sort of talk and you know songs from the fifties. Yeah. So I, I I didn't have an older brother or sister, so I, I sort of had to. Sort of make my way on my own. See, that's interesting because I, I, I've told this story before on the show where I didn't have what I call a musical pusher. Yeah. Because typically somebody has like an uncle or an older brother and they've got the record collection and they say, hey, you got to listen to this. I didn't have that either. Yeah. And I kind of had to just figure it out on my own wits. I went through magazines and I grew up in a small town and so – you know, I was really into the stronger sensations. Yeah. And so I was into the, the color in addition to, you know, the sound. So like yeah. things like Kiss and then I got into Motley Crue. I was saying earlier, you know, I was a big metal fan for yeah. that reason because I, you know, I needed the stimulus. But so how did you come into, you know, the songs that, that you loved? Well, the very first song I put down on my list was, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of the same. I I, I loved this band for five minutes for the same reason. It was the spectacle. Mm -hmm. It was this band called the Bay City Rollers. Yep. And the song's called Saturday Night. I had the pleasure of of hearing Mo Berg sing that probably about eight or ten years ago, actually. No uh, way. At the Horseshoe, because he, he had a cover band that would do all these awesome covers, and he covered it. It was, it was actually... It's wow. Great, it's actually a great song. But I found out about them on television. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't hear them on the radio or anything. Mm-hmm. And and there was this whole... It was almost like a, a boy band, but they played and they performed, and there was this Scottish band, War Tartan, and all the kids in grade four, all the girls were wearing tartan. It was this whole fashion thing. And it was a mm-hmm. pop band yep. and they were popular. So I, you know, so that was a, a song that I remember. I remember that being a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And I remember someone's else's older brother sort of telling me, that's ah, not really music. You don't know what music is and, <laughs> and being sort of confused at the time. Yeah. But that was sort of, that was it. I didn't have anything else to, you know. To, to sort of react to, um, mm-hmm. so it was it was stimuli, it was visual, yes. in as much as it was the song itself or the music itself. If, if that was in grade four or five or something as a little kid, nothing had really changed until I got to grade six, and then my grade six teacher, this guy, Mister Noble, mm-hmm. great guy, he had this musical elective. You could stay after school. Mm-hmm. He had a turntable. Mm-hmm. He had a headphone amp. And these massive headphones with curly cables attached to them. And he was introducing all of the kids to Led Zeppelin. Oh, really? And Rush and Genesis and all of this prog rock and blues rock stuff. I had never, I never even knew existed. Yeah. And that's the first time I heard Black Dog. Okay. I remember leaving, going home, doing whatever I could to find out as much as I could (laughs) about this, this band, Led Zeppelin. And that's when I begged my parents to get me a guitar. I, I wanted to do whatever that was. I wanted to do that. That was a massive turning point musically for me. And you're in grade six. Yeah. And you started chalk when you were in grade 10, 11? Yeah, so. it was, we had a couple of different names. I think we were called the reactors. Mm. Um, at one point, well, we were. I know that for a fact. I don't <laughs> think that. Um, eventually arrived at chalk circle. At some point, but it was a high school band. It was mm-hmm. myself and 
and Brad uh, grew up in the same town. We're in the same high school. He's a couple years older. Mm-hmm. He still is. Um, <laughs> and then our our drummer Derek was from Bowmanville, the town, the next town over. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's like someone said, "Hey, I know a drummer." You know, he was the drummer that yeah. played in <laughs> in town. So we met Derek, and that that's how that sort of started. Eventually, meet we eventually uh, met Tad after we moved to Toronto. Yeah, he joined the band as a keyboard player. Yeah. So the next song on your list after Saturday Night and Black Dog is a band that you toured with eventually, Rush. Yes. Working Man. So Black Dog and Working Man, that was, I, was, I was introduced to that first Rush album in grade six by that same teacher. Okay. So that blew me away as well. And I remember sitting in the basement, you know, a couple of years later with my guitar and the turntable mm-hmm. and Rush's first album trying to learn oh. the riff, trying to learn the solo just for hours and hours and hours on end. Yeah, I just, that's all I did. I just went 110%. Yeah. Big, yeah, big influence. Um, if someone had told me then that we'd be touring with them, you know, yeah. <laughs> 10 years later, I yeah. would, you know, that was uh, an incredible experience, actually. They're they're probably the nicest, the nicest people in show business from the top down crew band everyone was treated really well it was yeah. a really really special time good yeah. and what year would that have been i'm trying to think uh we we would have put our second record out so it was maybe 88 or 88. something or 87 yep. um we were touring that album i don't know that's yeah. a long time ago you know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, yeah they did a tour of i remember they did a, a, a quite an extensive tour of canada it was a big deal because they hadn't played the Maritimes for years. Oh. Everyone comes to Canada, plays Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Yeah. So they played two shows. They started their tour in, in uh, St. John's okay. and rehearsed for a week out there. So that's where it started. They played Sydney, Nova oh. Scotia. They played Halifax. They played St. John. Good. They, I think, or Fredericks, can, can't remember. Um, I think they did like a 12-date tour of, in Canada. It was pretty, pretty wow. amazing, actually. And that would have been around... I want to say hold your fire. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. May have been moving pictures actually. Oh, what's that then? Oh, no, that's I think that's like 81. Isn't that okay? That's got to be later than that. Yeah, I don't it know. was when they started that. Like it was this kind of the synth period, the 80s that Rush yes. went through. Actually, you're right. There was a lot of synths <laughs> on stage and under the stage. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a fifth Beatle or fourth Beatle. Oh no! Way. Um, under the stage, and he had racks of these S900s which were uh, rack-mounted sample units and almost like they almost look like video cassette cartridges Okay, that he spent the entire show basically popping in and out of these racks of, of, wow. of samplers under the stage. Under so the stage. That, yeah, when Getty played his synth, it was the right patch. Wow. That was crazy. And they had wow. lasers and it was nuts. Yeah. It's actually, <laughs> um, try not to go off on a tan- too many tangents here, which I, I do. Oh, apologize please. in advance. They went out uh, on that tour with a a quad PA system, so they had PA in the audience, okay. and the the front of house engineer would have a joystick, so he could actually fly fly sound behind the audience. No, like surround sound. The problem with that is the sound is facing the stage. The speakers are facing the stage feedback, and they're quite a ways away. Okay, so. All of a sudden, if you're on stage and that happens, you hear yourself because you're not behind the PA. It's, oh, yeah. it's facing you. And it comes back at you about 
a half a second later. Ah, uh, there's a delay. So they, I think, I think that lasted two shows. <laughs> they just, <laughs> they just crashed it. Yeah, you could tell when they they done it because all of a sudden everyone on you know the guys would just go, "What the?" Yeah, so that would be of, weird. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. But I mean, wow, they were they tried. You know, it was amazing. They were they were full on 110 percent like trying whatever the latest stuff is they wanted to to make it the best show they could so mm-hmm. hats off you know yeah definitely yeah, we, learned, we learned a lot touring with those guys yeah yeah i'd never heard of anything like that yeah i think maybe that was the first or the last time we would ever be tried <laughs> that's why <laughs> yeah anyway uh next song on your list is by the ramones i want to be sedated yeah so i go into high school you know, playing Rush songs and Zeppelin tunes and ACDC songs. And Max Webster was a huge influence. Yes. Like I loved Kim Mitchell's stuff and had all those records and was wanted to be a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And I was doing, doing my best to become a guitar player. And then high school shows up and you, you know, you start meeting people. And, and I met Brad, our bass player, who was mm-hmm. a couple of years my senior, but he had an older brother. So he had, he had someone to set him straight. And he had this entire other world of music that I didn't even know about because at the time, this little radio station in Toronto, CFNY, was broadcasting all of this post-punk music coming out of out of the UK and out of Europe and, and bands like the Ramones and, and the New York Dolls and mm-hmm. all, all these bands that you just would never have heard otherwise were suddenly uh, – Brad, Brad was getting exposed to through his brother Danny. So – I all of a sudden I my eyes are open. Yeah. And the whole punk rock, post punk like bands another band an Irish band Stiff Little Fingers. Yeah. was the one of, around that time I heard heard about them. This would have been in grade 10 or, or 11 and all of a sudden my my musical uh love changed dramatically. Like all of a sudden it was like 3 minute songs fast all down, you know, all all downstrokes on yeah. the guitar. <laughs> the other thing that was incredibly inspiring about that is that's when I started writing and I think I never I never considered writing before because you know you you had to be like a, a an incredible musician mm-hmm. to play a lot of this music mm-hmm. that I'd been listening to previously you can't just sit in unless you have some serious chops and play a rush tune yeah. or a Led Zeppelin song that's right you know and all of a sudden punk rock is three man, chords if you can play three chords and yeah. scream you can express yourself. <laughs> so it was incredibly liberating. And I just, be, I got m- m- even much more excited about music at that point. So, um, and then you find a little circle of friends who are passionate about the same things. There was this amazing little record store called Star Records in Oshawa. Okay. We would go there all the time. He had like imports and, That's you know, so great. And, and Japanese imports of cert- such so and so song. We, buy our records there, turn us on to new music. Mike Shulga, what's his name? Mike Starr. Um, he had a record label, actually. There's a couple yeah. of bands um, from Oshawa that, that were doing quite well at the time, too. Anyway, um, the Ramones, I mean, that they were huge. I remember driving from Newcastle to Toronto to go to the Masonic Temple. I think we went three years in a row to go see them play. Mm-hmm. Our first five-song EP we, we recorded at Quest, Recording studios in Oshawa. Yeah. It's just it was live off the floor to four track or two track or something. Those songs are the tempo they're at because we wanted to play as fast as the Ramones. <laughs> that was the influence. You know, wow. the music didn't necessarily sound like the Ramones, but the energy and the tempo. It's like we wanted to be the fastest band 
around. So that they were a huge influence in terms of just the excitement and raw energy of that. Wow. Uh, you know, so I would have never, ever guessed that. Yeah. That was, they were a big deal. I mean, leather jacket and ripped jeans. Yeah. He had, had the uniform. Yeah. You guys didn't really have long hair, though. Uh, long hair and me never mixed. It just started <laughs> to look like someone threw a towel at my head. Um, Brad had a spectacular mullet for quite a few years. <laughs> Probably one of the nicest mullets. If you can use nice and mullet in the same in sense. <laughs> yeah. And, and red hair. So it was, it was gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Wow. If, if I, if I just sort of start to let my hair grow below my ears, it just, I look like, I don't know. I just look dirty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing attractive about it. Yeah, it just wouldn't behave. So that wasn't my thing. Well, good for you. Yeah. 2020 hindsight there for me because uh, I did have a mullet and I regret it. So yeah. thank God for the internet. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's immortalized. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think there's one. I, I put a picture on Facebook of my mullet. I think I was in grade 11 and uh, it was like 86 or something like that just because I thought it was funny. But, you know, had the internet been around when I was, a, you know, when we were kids, yeah. it would have been a completely different story. I'm actually thankful it yeah. wasn't. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't know this next band. I, well, I, I've heard of them. Um, I don't know a lot about them. It's the Skids and the Into Skids. the Valley. Yeah. Around the same time, there was this crazy influx of all of this post-punk new wave music coming out of the UK in particular. And a lot of it was like really early 80s. And mm-hmm. I was sort of getting getting caught up. This band, the Skids from Scotland... You, what was great about all of the music that you were discovering, whether you're running into star records and getting introduced to like, what, you know, you'd be playing something in the record store, you're like, what's that? And you'd mm. buy it. Is there was so much music happening. There were, and it was, there was so much independent music. Like people were just making records and, and, and bootlegs and all of this stuff. And so you could find artists that became yours. Like no one else knew about it or yes. you could fall in love with. Yeah. And the skids was one of those was one of those for me and they actually the guitar player in the band Stuart Adamson I think I got that right he actually went on to form Big Country Big Country yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so the other influence for me was the guitar sound and that style that melodic all of those melodies that he wrote it's almost like he's writing a bagpipe melodies or yes, something it, it sounds like, very similar and just these big wide chords and so that that was a huge influence, and all of a sudden my guitar playing changed again. I, you know, I I was getting effects pedals, and it, it wasn't bar chords anymore. I was starting to write little two string parts and and moving melodies around chords and stuff on my guitar, mm. and and it was just emulating the the skids sort of sound and their whole vibe and the energy that came with that. That they, they, some great songs too, great lyrics. Some lyrics were very very much an influence as well there's one song called charles i think it was all all, all about a, a guy working in a factory mm-hmm. and i could identify it because where I, when i grew up it's like if you left high school you 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 go to university if you want or half of the population went and worked at general motors mm. so you did mm-hmm. the other option is you go and you work at a factory yes and so that that song resonated as well lyrically. So anyway, I fell in love with that band and um, just played those records to death and and learned every song on guitar and just did whatever I could. And and I felt like they were my band. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that yeah, that was another 
big influence in a, a formative age. So. You said a couple of things that I really keyed into there. So the first one was walking into the record store and they had the now playing feature, right? So yeah. whatever was, and you could look over at, in the store that I used to go to, which was uh, Records on Wheels yeah. in Sudbury. Yeah. I would hear it and say, I got to get that. And then you could look over and see the album. Yeah. And there was a sign below it, now playing. Yeah. Right. So they did yeah. that, which was great. Amazing. I totally forgot about that. But the other thing is that, uh, oh, what was I going to say? I forgot. Anyway, I'll come back to it. Well, that, but to, to finish the thought about record stores, like there was someone really knowledgeable, passionate about music who you got to know mm-hmm. and knew what you liked and knew what you might like and yeah. curated. Yes. Your playlist like would go, oh, man, if you like this, you're probably going to love this. Exactly. You had this relationship. It's sort of like going to a museum and, 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 oh, and, yeah. and being taken around and, and introduced to all of this art. And uh, th- there are a handful of those stores around still, but it's hard to it's hard to find that. It's hard now. to find them. Yeah. That was a magical, magical time. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. You took me back there just saying that. Uh, next, Echo and the Bunnymen and the Cutter. Yes, so we have a two-song cassette single. It wasn't Chalk Circle yet, but if you look at the cassette artwork, we're down at Lake Ontario. Mm-hmm. It's probably this time of year, maybe a little earlier in the year. There's ice. It looks like um, another world, and it was this location, mm-hmm. and we are dressed in trench coats, and we have our, our jeans rolled up, and we have boots on okay and we've got our hands in our pockets and we're looking off into the sky yeah in different directions that's like that was our echo and the Bunnymen album cover okay yeah all I, of their album covers were these crazy art directed shots at night with the band in the you know and or or like shot in iceland on some sort of ice you know ice flow or something mm-hmm. and and that was definitely reflective in their music it was very textured they used cellos they used different percussion piano like it was really really almost um orchestral a lot of orchestral sort of uh influences or 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 literally like use utilizing orchestral instruments but still a driving pop band ian's vocals were very he was a crooner and i what my singing changed you know i started to be influenced by singers because at this point we're a band we're making, we're recording music. We're going into studios, recording music, very influenced at the time by all of the music that's coming out of Toronto. All of these bands that we would end up getting to meet and be playing with, people were just making records mm-hmm. and people were making cassettes. By this time, we were listening to CFNY. I can't remember. I think at one point, all of a sudden, they were allowed to broadcast from the CN Tower or something. Oh. So suddenly we could get the station and they would play your music. If you sent it in, and one of their their on air personalities liked the song, or they had an independent actual indie, yeah. not indie as a genre. It was like indie because it was independently recorded. The artist just recorded it and sent it to the station. Mm-hmm. They play your music. They didn't wow. do it. So it was incredible. It was incredibly inspiring. We're like, well, we don't. We're just going to do this. Mm-hmm. So that that album around that time. We we were list, we were definitely listening to Echo and the Bunnymen and and there were bands like um, Simple Minds mm-hmm. and U two and yes, you all of those artists were starting to come influence us. But you can see it on that cassette cover. It's it's, it's hysterical. It's like that's exactly what we were influenced by. There's also a theatrical kind of art rock 
happening, starting to happen a bit in Toronto as well. Mm -hmm. Sort of started to get to know other bands and stuff like that. So yes. As a, as a vocalist, I loved Ian's voice. Like mm -hmm. I just, I just thought it was so spectacular. And I mentioned Simple Minds as well, which would have been around the same time. There were the, there was this sort of they were crooners, you know. They had this really beautiful voice. So I started singing with that intent. I know? can see that. Almost, yeah. And and Bowie, I started crept in eventually and stuff like that. So yeah, again, you know. Yeah. Those, I wore those records out. Yeah. See, it's funny that you say that because I, I picked up on that you know, with your voice, it didn't sound quite like anybody else. It might have sounded like a combination of a bunch of other people. And now that you yeah. say Bowie and Echo maybe, but yeah, I'd always picked up on that and the U2 influence for sure. Yeah. Particularly in April Fool, obviously. Yeah. Right. Well, and there's funny, you know, here's a funny aside. So I didn't want that song on the record. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I hated it. What? I thought it sound I thought it didn't sound like us. Because really? I for probably for a couple of reasons. One is that guitar part. At so the, to introduce yeah, the you two, yeah. So what I didn't realize at the time is the edge from U two mm -hmm. got that sort of sound by playing quarter notes and had a dotted quarter delay. Yeah. So you just You played it. one and played, played the other three. Went, da -da -da -da, right? Yeah. I did that with up and down strokes. You can so see in the, in, the actual, yeah. in the video, you're picking the whole and, thing. And so I didn't understand how to get that sound. So I was trying <laughs> to get that sound. <laughs> and in a, in a really, really, you know, awkward way, got kind of a slightly different sound that maybe is a bit ownable because wow. all of a sudden any, everyone, everyone had a delay pedal, right? Yeah, yeah. So my delay was going da da, not da da. Yeah, like it wasn't a, a dotted. It was just a quarter note. That's so, so funny. Yeah. Anyway, but um, no, I don't know. I always um, I I was definitely not allowed to pick singles after that. <laughs> <laughs> that was our that was our first single release, yeah. and that was our biggest radio hit. It was yeah. huge. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That yeah, was funny. That is incredible. I can't believe you didn't want that on the record. I can't remember why. We probably had some other sort of slow, kind of sad song that. Yeah. That I wrote the words for and thought was better or something. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Clearly, clearly not. Uh, you would no. make a good A and R guy, Chris. Yeah. No, not me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, straight to straight to cardboard. That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> Next, this is a song that plays in my house quite a lot. This is "Talk Talk" and "Life's What You Make It." At this point, we were recording. Mm -hmm. We were starting to record, and we probably had a, a record deal. I, I can't remember when that record came out, but I know that everyone was listening to it. Anyone who was making records was listening to it. Not only the songwriting and the arrangements of the songs, but sonically, the sound of that album. You put it on and just turn it up as loud as it can go, and it never gets loud. It just gets better. Mm -hmm. It's just so dynamic and so beautifully recorded. At that point, you start to pay attention. You start to learn about production as you do it. And... When we did the Mending Wall album that Chris Warbman produced, we were we were experimenting with a lot of a lot of sounds. We actually set up it was this recording studio at the time, Manta, and we set up. They had a huge, very large recording floor that would be to you'd have a orchestra, in, you know, fifty or sixty piece orchestra. It's mm. a great studio. So we set up our drums, and Chris had this idea of putting paired uh, room mics up at further and further intervals from the drums and then triggering them so you would have gotten like a lot of people were using the have these big drum sounds with 
with gated reverbs and stuff. And he figured out a way to get it live mm. using gated, delayed uh, stereo pairs of mics in, in a huge room. Wow. So we were we started to get really into sounds and guitar sounds were a big deal all of a sudden and the sounds of the bass and the sounds of the keyboards and it it became much more detailed thoughtful process recording the songs Mm -hmm. and and even just preparing to go in the studio was suddenly a much different process than it was on on the record before and that album was there were a few albums around that time like i mean avalon like yes. the Roxy Music record would yeah. be another example of that, where you just listening to it and and just over and over again, just discovering all of this beautiful texture and production and and polish. Very lush. Yeah. yeah. So so that Talk Talk record was a huge influence once once we started recording. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I I knew a guy who had a really great stereo, and I was always kind of very appreciative of the sonics involved with music. And so Talk Talk, this tune in particular. He would play it, and this is one of the songs that I credit with kind of dragging me away from, you know, the metal stuff because it just sounded so full and so lush. Again, it just had such a great sound quality to it that I wanted to hear it over and over again. Yeah, it's and it's so it holds up. My God, you mm-hmm. listen to it today; it's just spectacular sounding. Yeah, God rest his soul. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a that's one that we lost as well. So. Mm-hmm. February, yeah, yeah. Uh, lost another one recently here. Your next pick, David Bowie, Space Oddity. Yes. I had to put a Bowie tune on. I have every album that's ever recorded, even the uh, 90s albums. Uh, <laughs> Did Tin Machine? Yeah. Oh, Tin Machine <laughs> Records, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like once you – I don't think I, I was really into Bowie, and then all of a sudden he sort of showed up, and I just I, – it, it clicked, and I just – yeah. I lost a few years of my life listening to Bowie records. Just Space Oddity, I picked, I think, because I, I, I love the really stripped down rock tunes. I love the funk stuff he did. I love the, the later stuff. Space Oddity is just this, for the time it was recorded, mm-hmm. what it is. I can listen to that over and over again. You and I have a lot in common. I, you, know, you just triggered another memory. How I got into David Bowie was, do you remember Columbia House? Mm-hmm. So I, I obviously knew David well, Bowie going old, through. Eh? I, I know, right? I think we're about the same age. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 30. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 22. <laughs> oh, close. <laughs> Pretty close in age. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to be 54. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be 50 in a couple of days. There you go. Yeah. So David Bowie, uh, you know, obviously knew him through high school, all that stuff. But it wasn't until my 20s that I really kind of dug in and through Columbia House I figured I'm going to get some of these records because, you know, like Let's Dance and Modern Love and and whatever else, there's got to be other good songs in behind. So I got all the albums through Columbia House or sent each, whatever it is, and I went through and I did the same thing you did. I just immersed myself in David Bowie and, you know, Hunky Dory and The Man That Sold the World. yeah. 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 And there's so much richness in there. Yeah. And he's, I can say he's one of my absolute favorite artists of all time now. And my writing started to change when his within his influences. I started it started to become more complicated. I started there started to be there was more chords. There was more. It wasn't songs weren't as straight a line mm-hmm. as they had been. You know, in terms of a pop context, mm-hmm. big big influence. Yeah, something like quicksand. He jams in like eight chords just in. Yeah, you know, like it's like chord boot camp trying to play yeah. one of those songs. Yeah, yeah, love Bowie, miss him. Matthew Sweet, this is a great pick. Divine Intervention. Yeah. I love this. 
So now we're in the 90s. Yes. And uh, by this time, I think Chalk Circle's probably gone. Probably towards the end of Chalk Circle, ending, uh, after the last record around then, I started to fall in love with songwriters, more singer-songwriters. Like all of a sudden, Elvis Costello and that kind of stuff. And, and my mm-hmm. songwriting changed again. I started to write songs with more kind of classic structures and less riffs, okay. you know, less riffs. And I remember when that Matthew Sweet record came out, the sound of that album, the songs on that album, how dry everything was, how compressed everything was. Mm-hmm. That Again, that was just uh, such a decisive, such a marked difference. Like everything else was textured and, and layered and space and, and ambience and effects. And, and this was just dry, in-your-face, really, really well-crafted pop tunes. The vocals... All of the harmony vocals, I fell in love with that wall of Oz and yeah. Ooze yeah. backing him up. That were a big part of his his songs on all of his all of his records. Hundred percent fun is the same. Like great album. By the time I I, I kind of made it through the nineties, I, I I ended up making my own record. Actually, before that, I, I should I forgot to mention I had a made a couple of albums as part of the band Big Faith. Yeah. So that so the Matthew Sweet record would have been after that. The Bowie influence was probably a lot during. I was probably really influenced by Bowie um, through the Big Faith records. But when Matthew F- Sweet's records came out, um, I fell in love with them. When I did my own album, I really loved that sound, and I wanted it to be dry, and I wanted it to be in your face. And a lot of the songwriting that I'd been doing leading up to that, when I finally recorded my own record, mm-hmm. my solo album had been influenced by by Matthew Sweet's songwriting and other songwriters at the time. And that's another one of those CDs yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that I just played over and over again. I, I learned the songs. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to get a cover band together and play them. I just really wanted to learn how they were playing. Oh, really? How they, how they worked, you know? This I feel like this is, this, this was Girlfriend. I, f- I feel yeah. like... People bought the record for Girlfriend, but they yeah. were pleasantly surprised at all the other great material on us. Great album. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. really good guitar sounds on that particular tune too. Great. Yeah. Just that it's an amp in your face. Oh, yeah. Nothing in the way. Yeah. And the guitar solo is way louder than everything else. Yes. It's not it's not fit in nicely and cleanly. It's just like it feels like you're it feels live. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It yeah. feels sloppy, which is great. The girlfriend has that great breakdown. All of a sudden, the drums come back in for no reason. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. it kind of ends. Yeah. And it's like, great. <laughs> which is cool. Yeah. yeah. So this is a very interesting pick. Your next one. Um, only one other person in 109 shows that I've done has brought in Blinker the Star. Yes. And her name is Tara Sloan. Oh, my gosh. You're kidding me. That's that? awesome. Yeah. 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 Isn't that crazy? And the funny thing is I, I, I haven't met jordan but i've spoken to him a few times mm-hmm. you know, recently didn't sense writing this record blew me away mm-hmm. absolutely blew me away and i remember listening to it and and it became still is it's like on the back roads with the windows down in the car cranked mm-hmm. like when this choruses kick in the yes. production again i i always would sit down and listen to albums you know which i don't i don't do nearly enough anymore but that's i would spend hours doing that just sitting down with the album cover and listening to the record yes, and falling in love with songs, you know, the second listen, yep. all of a sudden finding that all of a sudden the fourth song on the second side pops out and you can't get enough of it. 
and uh, that I wore this thing into the ground, yeah. and I can t- it'll I'll be blasting it this summer for sure again. I was uh, I just assumed that was the beginning of world domination, you know, <laughs> for for Blinker the Star because that, that that record really was was incredible. This and again the production of that album I was a huge fan of the sound of the record, the arrangements, um, the vocals really loved that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the tune you listed here is September already for people yeah. who are listening in. Little band from Pembroke. This is, I want to say, 1998, 99. Yeah, yeah. 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 The turn of the century. Uh, September theme here. Earth, Wind, and Fire, September. Yes. So at this point, September already mm-hmm. is out. I have a five-year-old son. Okay. And our daughter is going to show up a year later. and And then eventually... We'll, we end up with three kids. That's our family song. That's oh. our song. That's, I took my son when he would have been, my kids are five years apart. My oldest son at the time was probably 19. Mm-hmm. So I took maybe a little older. So, so 20, 15 and 10. So the, the three of them and, and myself went to, to the ACC to go see Earth, Wind and Fire. Oh, wow. We had to go. Yeah. Know? And that song is like cranked in the car. We're heading anywhere. It's That's so this great. song that, yeah, it's become this sort of anthem for our family. And, That's awesome. And my, it's something that my kids and I just can't get enough of. That's really cool. I also had the, did this charity show called, it was called Ad Bands uh, because it's a bunch of people in the advertising community who put together bands for, for this charitable event. And we, we did it for a few years in a row. One year we did all, you know, disco and soul tunes, and mm-hmm. we we got to I got to sing that song. Oh wow! Which was, which was a blast. Had horn section with us, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I for the longest time I didn't know what the name of the song was. I thought it was on and on, but what is the what is the chorus? Is it body ya? Yeah, it's just it's, it's just, just three vowels noises. and consonants. I think. Yeah, body ya. It's a great song. Yeah. See, everybody, it's funny because you might not know it by name, but as soon as you hear it, you instantly know it. Yeah. It's, it's a classic. You know, from the Ramones to, but, you know, as as you get older and, and you're exposed to more music and more musicians and your influences get wider and wider and wider. And yes. I think what's interesting now is for, you know, my, I can see it with my kids. They love everything. Mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder, amazing. But it can be like, it's from soup to nuts. Yeah. They just like music and because they can access it all immediately. Yeah. So they, and they can access it all from throughout history. So they're listening to Stevie Wonder and they're listening to Earth, Wind and Fire and they're listening to David Bowie and they're listening to Neil Young's song and they're listening to, you know, some more contemporary artist. Mm-hmm. And to them, it's just all, it's either great or it sucks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think in a lot of ways they have an advantage definitely that we didn't have i i sort of had to grow into all of this stuff yes by being exposed to it through different people and, and slowly sort of get introduced to it it'd be interesting to know what kind of music i would have written if i'd been able to hear it all that's you know? an interesting yeah. take so let me ask you a question which would you prefer if you could have a choice between both oh i have no idea i don't know what the i have no idea what the other <laughs> what would have happened yeah if it, it's yeah. crazy it's like sliding doors yeah. almost isn't it so you you could have access to spotify yeah when we were you know 16 yeah. 14 whatever or you could have done what we actually did 
I will say what I think is kind of lost, maybe, and I may be just, maybe I'm just too old, is listening. People listen to playlists and they listen to songs, but a lot of people don't sit down and listen to albums. There's the albums kind of gone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, there's no point. And, right. and there's, there's no point to release an album. You just release songs. Mm -hmm. An album to me was this chunk of time and I could listen to this collection of music that was put together and curated for me by my art, the artist that I was in love with and, yes. and interested in. And it was a deeper experience, I think. Yep. Then listening to a playlist and getting distracted by the next suggested song mm -hmm. rather than just deep diving. And a lot of those songs that some of my favorite albums, I, I remember listening to for the first time, someone telling me this is great, you should get it and going, I don't get it. You know, it's not really resonating with me. And then putting the record down and then two weeks later, sort of seeing it there and picking it up and putting it on again. And all of a sudden the thing pops mm. and it becomes one of my favorite albums. Really? And th sometimes, sometimes things just need time Yes, and you need to sit with things to get it. You mm -hmm. know, you need to give it a chance. And, um, so I remember listening to the first, uh, new, uh, new pornographers record mm -hmm. and looking at who was in the band and knowing, you know, knowing where a lot of the people came from, and listening to it and going, ah, gee, I don't know. And then putting it on again and like just going, wow, mm -hmm. how did I not hear this the first time? And became an instant fan and bought all their records and go to their shows. And just, you know, I think incredible songwriter, you know, great players, great band, like big, fantastic, inventive chord changes and melodies. And, yeah. you know, so it's, um, yeah. I think the last, you know, we, I talk about this on the show all the time and it's, it's not a case of being old. It's just, it was, it was a completely different time yeah. when people focused on listening to albums, mm -hmm. you know, as just a very specific kind of function as opposed to grabbing songs out of the ether and playing them and everything's just completely dislocated. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, probably the last time I really, really focused on an album per se is when it came out, I mean, is uh, Ryan Adams Gold. Yeah. I don't know if you're a Ryan Adams fan. I've heard songs. I've never sat down and listened to a whole album. Mm. Um, maybe I should. Highly yeah. recommended. So, yeah. and, and, and I, it was recommended to me by a good friend. Yeah. And so I listened to it. Well, it actually caught my ear when he was listening to it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, this is really great. But I listened to the record and I did what uh, what you did. You described it earlier about having wow, now like track four is my new favorite song. Oh my yeah. God, track seven is yeah. So you just, you have a new favorite song every time you listen to the record. Yeah. And that's great. That's a great thing. Yeah, it's, uh, that's how I've ended, that's how I've fallen in love with artists. Mm -hmm. It's it's always, it's not the single, it's it's the rest of the the stuff that I end up, I end up uh, falling in love with. Mm -hmm. you know? And even those, you know, what you might think are clunkers on records still kind of contribute to the overall ethos of the album when yeah. you look back on those records. Yeah. You know, track nine, you know, it might sound like kind of a throwaway song, but when you consider the album in retrospect, you think, yeah, I couldn't imagine without it. Yeah. You yeah. know? It's changed quite dramatically. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Last tune, Chris. You're going to have to educate me on this one. Oh. It's Volpec. Oh, Volpec. I've, I've, I've uh, never yeah, even heard of this band. So this is, Who is this? And the song, sorry. So this is a Dean bunch Tim. of guys from uh, California. I 
can't remember how it was turned on to them. Maybe my son. So one of the reasons I put them in is there was another song that I think I sent you, the Breeding Ground song. Yes. I think I, I, we were talking about this earlier. When we made records, so for example, Chalk Circle's very first album, which was a six-song EP, mm-hmm. we recorded that on our own. We we were we didn't have a record deal when we recorded that album. We got oh. a, we got a bank we got a bank loan. We had a loan from a guy named Rob Sandolowich okay. for a thousand bucks or something, wow. two grand. Um, he he owned the PA company that Blue Peter. Um, he he was Blue Peter's sound no guy way. and owned, wow. owned it. Was building this PA company, so he he just wanted to loan us money. Blue Peter at the time was this Toronto band. Uh, their guitar player, Chris Warbin, produced our first two records. So mm-hmm. that's the connection. You know, we were playing in Toronto. We'd have, you'd have ANR guys come to your show, you know, because they'd heard about you and you're starting to draw an audience. And everyone was said, well, yeah, no, you guys are great, but you know, you got to work on your live show or you guys are great, but you need better songs or, or you know, there's always some sort mm-hmm. of excuse. We're not sure. At the time, some of the bands that were the biggest influences for all of us were from Toronto independent recording artists. Mm-hmm. They were they were our friends and they were people making incredible records. Um, L'Etranger was a huge influence. There were two members of Parliament now who were in that band. Oh, wow. Uh, Angus, uh, uh, Charlie Angus, NDP, was the bass player and Andrew really? Cash was the guitar player. Andrew somewhere. Cash, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And wow. Andrew had become a very good friend. And we ended up playing together later when he became Andrew Cash, the solo artist. But anyway, and then, um, but at the time there was this band Breeding Ground who I met when I was working as a kid in at Quest Recording Studios in Oshawa. Mm-hmm. And they were a band from Toronto who made a record and they came to Quest Recording stu- Studios and they recorded it and mixed it. And I met them. I'm like, wow, we can just record. So <laughs> we just recorded. We recorded a five song cassette at Quest. We did another two song recording there over a weekend. And we released them and we, you know, I was mentioning earlier, we sent them to CFNY at the time, the radio station, and we, we you know, we sell them off the stage. Mm-hmm. That's come full circle. That's where indie came from, right? As we were talking earlier. Yeah. Now artists are making records, releasing them on their own, basically, and selling them off the stage. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're literally running independently. I have friends that are making a living doing that and they're making a living mm-hmm. and they also own all of their own music. The record company doesn't, they haven't assigned all of the copyright and the label doesn't own the master. It's truly an independent music scene in a lot of respects, again, which is, I think, is exciting. So, very long preamble. <laughs> How the hell does Wolfpack factor into that? Yeah. I find out about Wolfpack. How most of us find out about our favorite music, it's, it's a referral. A friend says, you got to check these guys out. Mm-hmm. They were recording songs not very well two or three at a time and they were making these quirky little videos on youtube where they would basically had an iphone or something in a rehearsal space and they would record it and then they'd put it out and Uh and they were entertaining and fun great great musicians a lot of it was instrumental it's like funk and soul from the 70s and the production is like that really dry and in your face incredible players I started to search. I had to search for them. I had to find them on their Bandcamp page mm-hmm. to, to buy their records. I bought all their old records on their Bandcamp page for wow. $9 or whatever it was. There was a, a, an email, that, and I thought I was the only one who knew about them. I remember turning people, have you guys heard of these? No, who's that? The, the only way you would have heard about them is by word of mouth. Mm. They book a show 
they send actually on through social media. They say, hey, we're going to play in Toronto. We've never played there. Where should we play? And everyone tells them where to play. And I find out they've booked the show at Lee's Palace. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm going. Yeah. So I buy tickets as soon as I see that. I get an email notification two hours later saying, hey, the venue's changed. So what had happened is they sold out Lee's Palace. Wow. I didn't even know that anyone else knew about them. They sold yeah. out Lee's Palace in an hour. They ended up playing three sold-out shows at the Phoenix. Wow. No airplay, no promotion, nothing. This is all word of word of mouth. Unbelievable. The other thing that was remarkable about their story for me is a lot of their music is, is instrumental. Mm. There's a song. I think it's Dean Town. Is that the one I picked? Yes. So Dean Town is an instrumental song with basically this very involved, long bass riff through the whole thing. It's a lead bass melody through the whole song. Here I am at a sold-out Phoenix, thinking I'm the only one in Toronto, or four people in Toronto who even know who this band is. Mm -hmm. And there are a thousand people singing this bass melody, have memorized it, singing it note for note back at this guy on the stage. Independent music, just released it. It's really good. It defies genre. You're never get, it can't fit into a radio format. No yeah. one's ever going to play it on the radio. And they're selling out three shows at the Phoenix, having never come to town again. To me, that's, that's really exciting. That's, that's where music's at these days. You can make art and share it. You, yeah. There's, you don't have, there's no filter. How yeah. If that? you haven't heard, if you haven't heard that song, you're going to, uh, oh, I'm going it. to. No, yeah. I, I know nothing yeah. about it, but yeah. I, I definitely will check it out. That's yeah. a, fantastic story so that you know that resonated me with me not just musically but just thinking of how we started you know we just did it it's like no we're gonna make a record and that's what's you know that's what they did i i love that i love what you've done here this is a progressive retrospective story of you progressing through your life and the career of your bands yeah with with uh, your song list here this is very well done i couldn't do it otherwise i didn't know how to i couldn't start (laughs) like there's too many songs that are so meaningful and make you know i mean we were talking before we started one of the inspirations for this was you and a buddy going and Mm -hmm. bringing your top 95 songs each yeah like pare that down oh you can't it's impossible so how do i so this was an attempt at framing this somehow that's great but i love what you've done that's fantastic really well done i remembered uh, what I was going to say about oh, 40 yes. minutes ago. Yes, good. Keyed into what you said about having songs that you felt like were your own and artists yeah. that were just yours. Because I felt that intense feeling of, uh, you know, when I would experience bands that I thought nobody else knew about, I kind of wanted to keep them to myself mm-hmm. in, a, in a, a greedy kind of way, admittedly. But uh, Metallica was one of those bands. I bought Kill 'Em All, their first record yeah. in '83 in the U.S., based on the album cover yeah. and what I thought it might sound like, and I loved it. Everyone else hated it, but I thought I'm going to keep this to myself. Yeah. I don't care if anybody else likes yeah. it, you know. And I do remember that that feeling I, when you said that. I just I really kind of uh, you know keyed into that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's awesome. There's there have been a few artists like that and and songs like that as well mm-hmm. where you just. Someone tells you about something, you discover it, and you start you're hoarding. I guess at that point, <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, you just—I yeah. remember flipping through the bins, you know, and going and 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 seeing something that was visually interesting, yeah. and then thinking, hmm, this—you know—you kind of have like a little checklist in your mind, like, uh, this is cool, this isn't so cool. You know, you kind of roll the dice on it. Sometimes it sucked. Sometimes it was yeah. amazing. 
had an interesting experience uh, in that regard. It's kind of a big story, but I'll try and I'll try and keep this <laughs> in. There was this band, uh, Blue Nile, and mm-hmm. a song called Happiness. Yeah. And I remember listening to that song, and that was one of those songs that I listened to over and over again. Just, you know, the ending when the choir comes in, it's just gorgeous, and the, the lyric and the and his vocal performance is fantastic. Anyway, fast forward years and years, and a couple of years ago, well, this started a few years ago, I was asked to put together a show for uh, in support of the Alzheimer's Society's music project. At the time, John Mann had gone public with his diagnosis of early-onset Alzheimer's. Long story short, John ended up doing the first during the, doing the shows, and we ended up calling the event The Spirit of John. We just had our fourth one, mm-hmm. The Phoenix, which was amazing, was awesome. And as we progressed through the years, the first year John came and performed and sang. The second year John came and sang, he could no longer perform. So more people were on stage to help him perform. By the time the third year came, we didn't know if John was even going to make it because he couldn't perform anymore. And and we weren't sure. It's a long way from Vancouver. So we had to come up with an idea about what are we going to do? Like John's the headliner. Mm -hmm. So Spirit of the West came Ah. instead, which was amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. And then what, what we, th- we decided is the music project provides um, care providers um, an MP3 player and headphones that they, they load up the MP3 player with their loved one's favorite songs. When, when someone listens to music from their past, they literally can wake up. and It's quite profound yeah. without going into detail about it. So we decided we were going to do a live playlist for John. John needs this, so we're going to do this for him. So that's how we framed the third year. So John's wife, Jill, and his family and friends put together a list of songs that we were going to cover for him. I mm-hmm. hope he was going to be there and we were going to be able to perform it for him. Mm-hmm. And one of the songs on that list was the Blue Nile Happiness. Wow. And I remember going, oh, my God, like someone else knows about this song, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it was this moment because a, a lot of people I knew didn't, Maybe had heard of the band, but weren't really that passionate about that record and that song in particular. Mm-hmm. And and that was one of those moments where it was like, where I, I all of a sudden felt this deep connection with someone just because that song appeared on that list, and I knew that was a big song in his life. Yeah, and I got and I I, I was very um, grateful that I was able to perform it too that year, and that was the song that we ended the night with. We got everyone came on stage and we sang uh, Happiness. Uh, wow. with, the, with with everyone back on stage at the end it was a beautiful beautiful experience so, that's fantastic yeah wow music pretty powerful thing it really is yeah. it really really is yeah. you know i have to tell you chris talking to you is almost like talking to myself a lot right. of the things that you said are things that i often think about and and experience yeah. i know we're close in age as i said but um we have a hell of a lot in common this is uh really yeah. interesting I would imagine everyone's experience is similar, I guess. I don't know. I haven't really. It's interesting. I don't think I've ever had this conversation before. Mm. It's a great exercise. Yeah. Sit down and talk about why particular pieces of music influence you or or are important to you Mm -hmm. and what influence it's had on your life. Yeah. Well, you, I know you have more than 10 songs, so uh, you are more than welcome to come back (laughs) and talk about. uh, Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. It's been great. Anytime. Anytime, Chris. I'm really glad you came by today. Cheers. Thanks a lot. All right. This has been No Slip the Subway with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Chris Tate. Until next time, folks, take good care. 
Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suppery. Leftover People and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>